Welcome to Gay Ambitions with your host, Paul Collington, featuring inspiring entrepreneurs and advocates sharing success stories and actionable career advice, bringing out the best in the business and the LGBT community. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download today and your free trial at www.gabookclub.com. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from with Audible for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Here's our interview with Okan Sengun from a couple months ago. We're getting caught up now with the content that we have recorded, so the coming interviews will be more recent. One of the important things to highlight from this interview is that if you or someone you know has been in the U.S. for less than a year and you're scared to go back to your home country because you identify as LGBT, you may be able to stay in the U.S. I hope you enjoy this interview and feel free to share it if you know someone who can benefit from the content. Have a great day. Welcome to Gay Ambitions, where we bring out the best in business and the LGBT community. Kenny Wynn and I have the pleasure of being on a Skype call with Okan Sangun, and he is the founder of Okan Law. He's a passionate immigration attorney and has represented established businesses, startup companies, entrepreneurs, dreamers, documented and undocumented individuals in the Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, San Francisco Asylum Office, U.S. Department of Justice, and others. His office is located in San Francisco, and their mission is to provide the best counsel, advocacy, and personalized legal service for individuals and businesses. Thank you so much, Okan, for being here with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Of course. And we wanted to start with your initial story because we understand this is very personal to you, what got you into this business. And we were wondering if you could share your own story with us. Sure. So I was born and raised in Turkey, in the capital called Ankara. And I studied law in Turkey. And when I was 24 years old, I was about to graduate and see what I wanted to do. But growing up as a gay person, gay man in Turkey, which is it's an Islamic country and gay people are being harassed and beaten up. And so it's definitely, it was definitely not easy to be gay. So I had no gay friends, no boyfriend. So it was, I wanted to get out as soon as I could. So I did my research to see where I can go after my graduation. So I was researching the immigration laws of different countries like the UK, Netherlands, like France, Germany, and the US, Canada, and I realized that the United States is obviously the nation of immigrants and it welcomes people from different countries and it's a little easier, uh, you know, if you work hard, you can just like stay here and have to go back. So that's why I chose to come here to Los Angeles first and I studied at UCLA for a year and that's when I applied for my master's program and I got accepted to UC Hastings College of Law here in San Francisco and that was in 2009. So um, I studied there for a year year, and it was a life-changing experience for me coming to the United States from Ankara as a gay person, you know, going out to West Hollywood for the first time and just being out and open, it's a life-changing experience, yeah. Kenny and I were just talking about 
how it might be hard for people, depending on what line of business you're in, if your credentials don't transfer from your country to the U.S. and then you have to go through getting licensed and getting different certifications. But it sounds like you were able to complete your law degree at some very high-ranking universities here, so that's really cool. Yeah, it was definitely not easy because there are so many struggles. Like, I had to take certain amounts of credits about the U.S. legal system and to only be able to sit on the bar exam. And now you have to study for the bar exam just like all the other people and, you know, to pass that to get your license and practice law. So, Okan, tell us the moment when you were about to leave Turkey, like, What were you feeling? Did you tell your family who knew about it? Take us back to that moment. It was a great moment. I mean, I was extremely excited. I had my friends over to my place with my family, well, with my mom, and we're packing, and I I actually had two friends in L.A., so I knew where I was going to go. I was just extremely excited. I knew that that was the moment that I, that was my last, like, living situation in Turkey so I knew I was not going to go back as a resident of Turkey so but obviously it's, it's still stressful you are you know going to a country where you have no idea about it's a different culture different language and yeah you just don't know and you have a non-immigrant visa so uh, nothing is permanent at that moment you are in this unknown time zone and I was just definitely super excited and I came here I landed at LAX, and then my journey started from there. Awesome. And was was your family supportive of you coming to the U.S. and, and like, absolutely. living your life openly as a gay man? Um, absolutely, yeah. By the time I was leaving Turkey, I don't think I was open. I can't remember, but I don't think I was open to my family. I was open to my friends. But my family has always been very supportive. Me having an education outside Turkey and, you know, somewhere either in Europe or in the United States. Yes, they actually came here to visit me and multiple times. Have you come out to them when they had come visited you or, like, you know, when you left? Like, what? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so my, uh, my family, so my mom and my dad divorced when I was 18 years old, I believe. So, and I lived with my mother, but then after I came to the U.S., it took me some time to, first of all, adjust to this country and to the culture and also to the gay culture, too. There was no, you know, we didn't go to gay bars, we didn't have any gay friends, or it was all new. So I think it took me some time to fully absorb and accept this new lifestyle and I realized that it is totally okay to just you know wherever I need you know totally be okay to just say hey you know by the way my boyfriend is this and my boyfriend is just using that term even freely and openly it was it was amazing so but it took me some time to fully come out to my parents and that actually happened around when I started my own business because my business is heavily focusing on LGBT issues and LGBT immigrants and I do a lot of social media posts and interviews like this. So I'm definitely out there as a, as a gay attorney. So they had to learn at some point. So now they know and they're very supportive. I love that. Okan, obviously you put a lot of thought and planning into making that big lifestyle change and change across the world. Did, was there a moment that kind of validated that decision for you when you thought, okay, I made the right decision. This is exactly 
what I should be doing. What, when did you kind of realize that? I think I realized that after I moved to San Francisco. Because when I lived in LA, it was still, I think I was still transitioning mentally from a conservative living situation to the LA situation. And, and also I was 24 years old, I was very young, I was meeting new people, going out, studying, so I wasn't really sure what, what was happening. So after I moved here to San Francisco and started law school, that's when everything became a little more serious. I started volunteering for nonprofits and I think the community feeling here in the Bay Area, especially in the Castro and San Francisco, that made me realize that, yes, this is where I needed to be. This was the best choice. Yeah, I think moving to San Francisco was that time when I realized, yes, this was a good idea. Beautiful. Not the best. Yeah. And you also mentioned doing interviews and being out there in the community. I was curious what role does networking and social media play in your in your business and developing your client list yes so social media and being out there networking is the key for a successful business i would say i because i practice lgbt immigration well right now i actually my practice expanded but I, this is how i started and i focus i targeted lgbt communities the networking events so i would go to all the networking events give my business cards away, add them on Facebook. I have like around 3,000 people on my Facebook and I do, I use Facebook for um, mostly professional uh, purposes right now. And just constant posts and blogs on my, blog posts on my website about successful cases from whenever I started. So like things like marriage-based approvals to asylum approvals. It's just you need to let people know what you do. And you start with your close circle, and then that expands. And now, it's the word of mouth that people just come to me, and I think that was one of the key things that made my business still um, continue, I would say. We understand that you also have a really high success rate with what you do. I think we read somewhere that it was around 100% of clients that you work with having a success. How do you measure your own success? Um, what I do is I do many meetings and I do initial consultation with a person and make sure that the person is actually eligible for the immigration benefit that he or she wants to apply for. Let's say if it's an asylum case, then I really make sure that the person has no issues, not going to have any issues in terms of the law or the processing or documentation. And I explain them in detail, hey, these are the risks and this is what it is and I do not represent false claims so that's one thing all my clients they have real asylum claims or real marriages because there are a lot of practitioners out there that they do they help they represent fraud fraud marriages or fraud asylum applications which I don't do and yeah and I think I was I was in their shoes like I've been an immigrant I am an immigrant so I know what they go through I know what the immigration office wants from them because I experienced that firsthand as a client and then as a lawyer. So I've been on both sides. I think that really helps me understand what's happening. Yeah. So tell us about your first asylum case. I know you mentioned about it that, you know, you were actually your first case. So tell us about that one and what was that process like for you? 
absolutely. My first asylum case was my own case. That that was my first experience and first time at the asylum office. And I it was very stressful as a client, as the applicant, but I really, really enjoyed the process. I enjoyed working on my declaration, gathering supporting evidence, country conditions information, researching and preparing all of that. I really enjoyed it and that's when I that's when it clicked. Okay, this is the practice area that I can do and I can actually love and that was the moment. And luckily, I mean, my kids got approved in 15 days, and I'm here, and this is what I do now. I'm a, I'm a proud U.S. citizen now, and I've been passionate about my work since then. So it seems like the asylum project, your, your passion project, really stemmed from your initial experience in, in becoming an asylum E in the U.S., and it's, it seems like you're passionate about helping other people do the same now as well, too, who are, like, in your shoes. Mm-hmm. Were, was there any case that, worked, that you worked on that really was close to your heart? I was wondering if you can share one of the stories that really, like, touched your heart. I know you work with, like, many, many people from many different countries who face political and religious persecution for being gay. Was there was there any story that really touched you and that you really remember? Yeah, there are so many touching stories. If I can remember, I would say the first pro bono case that we did through the nonprofit, I would say that's the that's the case that I remember because it was our first case and it was a gay man from Nigeria and he's been has been arrested while he was hanging out with his boyfriend somewhere in Nigeria and then being put in jail and he was tortured in jail just for just because they were um, kissing I believe and just maybe not fully close so then he was released but then he had some issues with his family members they tried to attack him so he had to leave the place where he was staying so he was homeless at some point and then he found a way to get to the United States and we were able to help him because he had no financial support and nowhere to stay, nowhere to t- no one to talk to. Yeah, and then his case got approved. We actually got to expedite his case and now he's a green card holder, actually. So. Wow, so how do people coming from those scenarios when, when they move halfway across the world and then they're in the United States, how do they build their lives from that point in terms of getting health care, challenges, getting jobs, things like that, assimilating into the new culture? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, um, it is definitely not easy for LGBT folks coming from different countries. First of all, it's the cultural issue, the cultural differences. One asylum case, an asylum case used to take about two, two and a half years. So once the client applies for asylum, they have to wait for two years almost. And the first six months, they do not have work permits. So they cannot legally work in the United States the first month, the first six months. That part is the most challenging part for LGBT folks and asylum seekers. A lot of times they couch surf, they stay at their friends' places. I mean, we do have clients that are homeless, unfortunately. A lot of times they don't have permanent like addresses, so we use our office address as their mailing address yeah. because it's really important to stay in touch with the asylum office. 
Yeah, it's been, it's been challenging. There are some nonprofits providing healthcare. Like we just partnered up with the SSA Foundation. Uh, we do now uh, monthly events at the Struts in the Castro to educate people about the asylum process and answer questions. So it is actually every second Saturday of the month. And Struts also handles the medical part of the, uh, of the of immigrants. Basically, just help them with uh, testing and providing medication and, and that. But and in terms of jobs, of finding jobs or employment, as I said, the first six months they don't have work permits. Even after that, they, even their resumes and cover letters are different than what we use here in the United States. So they need to adjust themselves and do everything from scratch. It's definitely harder for LGBT asylum seekers to get a job versus non-asylum seekers, I would say. And you talked a little bit about pro bono cases and some of the nonprofits that you partner with, like for healthcare, for example. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like what resources are available to folks who might not have substantial means to to hire people for this and to get services afterwards? Sure. So let me just talk about the nonprofit and how it started. So in 2015, I co-founded the LGBT Asylum Project. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization providing free legal services for LGBT asylum seekers who have been persecuted in their home countries for being either who they are or who they love and basically because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Our clients mostly come from Nigeria, Uganda, Saudi Arabia, places where being LGBT is punishable by death. If not death, then there are, there, you know, the punishments are life imprisonment. In some countries, it's imprisonment for 14 years and lashes for a lot of our lesbian clients. And we did have, we had clients who had to go through those penalties. So we started the nonprofit, and then we provide only we can only provide represent, legal representation in their asylum cases. In the within the last two years, we've partnered up with the Q Foundation. Q Foundation provides housing assistance for LGBT people in the city of San Francisco. So they recently just received a grant to help our clients, I would say LGBT asylum seekers that who live in the city of San Francisco. So that was a great partnership we are very excited about. Also, the SFH Foundation, they provide health services regardless of a person's immigration status. So that is really important as well. If a person wants to get on PrEP or need HIV medication, they provide that. So in time, we are partnering up with other local nonprofits, and we tell our clients, with mostly at the initial consultation, we understand their needs, and we say, okay, this is where you can go get help for your health issue, or because a lot of our clients, they are actually HIV positive too. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, but just most of them. And we have a director of client relations mm -hmm. who has the resources to guide the clients to basically. So we put them in touch with them and he directs the client to the right resource in terms of the client's needs. Well, you are doing wonderful work for the community. 
What about it do you enjoy most? Like on a day to day basis, is it getting things done on the on the paperwork and process side, or is it interacting with the clients? What what part do you enjoy the most? I enjoy the client interaction the most in my day to day work. I would say. Before I started my own practice, I worked for an, uh, for an immigration firm for two years, mm-hmm. and we practiced business-based immigration law, family-based immigration law, asylum, deportation proceedings, citizenships. So we did a lot of work visas, and we also did a lot of family-based immigration. That's where I realized I really enjoy working with people instead of just on documents and with corporations. So that was an eye-opening moment for me. Okay, I know what I want to do, what I want to practice. And once, once I started my own business, so I only do right now, I only do asylum, marriage-based, like family-based, green card applications and citizenships. Because I really enjoy working with individuals and helping them and giving them, I mean, our nonprofit gives them hope that they don't have to go back to their home countries and they can actually stay here, start all over and be who they are freely and safely in the United States. I think the appreciation from the client at the end of the case, that's also priceless. Okan, how do you feel about the rhetoric in this country, like around immigration? Like there's talking about dreamers and DACA in the news. Do you feel like we've become more immigrant accepting or less and how does that make you feel that's a very sensitive and hot subject right now dreamers so daca is an issue and hopefully i really hope that the congress can pass immigration reform that covers dreamers and give them the legal path to citizenship. Yeah. And we are all hoping for that to happen and waiting for it uh, because, yeah, I mean, these people, they, they came here when they were one or two, three years old, and uh, this is their country, they're Americans, it's just yeah. without paper. So they definitely obviously deserve to have their citizenship recognized. It's, it's definitely, yeah, there are, Ice rates and there is uh, there is definitely a threat and uh, everybody is nervous about the new administration. But um, we do our best to comfort our clients to make sure that they're as safe as possible and get their cases finalized as soon as we can so that they don't have to deal with the immigration office and get out of that stressful lifestyle. I would say. Do you have any habits that you feel contribute to your success, like on a daily basis? Like, how do you accomplish all this? <laughs> yeah, so any habit, that's a, that's a great question. I have, well, first of all, I have my own schedule, so I definitely don't work from nine to five. Yeah. I, and I'm actually against it because like some people that are more productive in the morning and some people in the evening. So I'm definitely more productive between 5 p.m. and 9 p.m. That's when I'm extremely productive. And so what I do is I just wake up in the morning, I do my emails and um, so I do my emails, yeah, and text messages. So I don't do phone calls. So nobody can reach my office by just calling it. Mm. So that's, that's the difference. I think that's one of the differences that I do as opposed to other firms and offices, so I don't do phone calls because a lot of times if they have questions that we don't really help with, like divorce or other stuff, so we can't really waste time on 
not related phone calls. So I, that's why I only do emails and text messages to make it, uh, and then if there is anything else, anything that I can help with, then we schedule a consultation or a quick phone call. I think that saves a lot of time on my side. Yeah. And because my practice area is very limited, it's easy for me to tell people, hey, I, do pra- I practice asylum, green card, uh, marriage-based green card applications and citizenship. So other than those, I refer to my colleagues or other immigration lawyers or family lawyers. So having that network is definitely very important for my business too. And so I don't have to spend time on a new type of application versus I can work on three other cases. Yeah, and then so I know when I'm very productive, I also do, um, I work out in the middle of the day, so that kind of divides my day in health. Nice. Uh, that helps me a lot with my mental, I guess, uh, like reduces my stress level. And then I do my meetings in the in-person meetings in the afternoons and then work until usually 9 p.m. or so. That's overall like my day-to-day office day, basically. I love that middle-of-the-day workout. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that. I highly recommend it. Yeah, it helps to reduce stress and it, it kind of gives you like a second win for the rest of the day, you know, like a pick-me-up for energy. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I think like doing things at different times than other people, that gives me so, I don't have to do the commute when everybody is commuting at 5 p.m. Right. Or everybody is going to the gym after their work versus right. nobody goes to the gym in the morning or during the day. So it's definitely saves a lot of time on my side too by not doing, and you know, when I'm in the office, office is quiet, nobody's here, there's no chit-chatting. I mean, I love chit-chatting, don't get me wrong, but and I love people, but it's just, you know, I come here, do my work and get out. So I think that that really helps. What is on your horizon for the next few months or so? What would you like people to know about your work and what your what your goals are? Yeah, so as I said, we started, so in terms of the nonprofit, we are launching our monthly events at the Strut in the Castro. Those are every second Saturday of the month. That's where we give information about the asylum process. And for, tell, tell people and who don't know about Strut, like what is Strut? For people who don't know about Strut. Yeah, 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 that's a good question. So, Strut is the build of, the, I don't want to give wrong information, but Strut is this building where they provide medical services to LGBTQ people, regardless of their immigration status or, uh, and they provide free assistance. It's a part of the SSAIDS Foundation. Okay, awesome. So it's one of their locations, and the lo- that location in the Castro is called the Strut. And yeah, it's a beautiful building. If you haven't been there, you should go check it out. It's a beautiful building. They actually have to help you find insurance coverage if you don't have one. They help you get on PrEP. They help you get HIV medication. They test you regularly. If you had a fun night, you can just go get tested the next day. And they really, they're really friendly and uh, they do a great job. And they're in the, in the heart of the Castro. So one of the uh, best things about our partnership with them is we are having our banner right outside of the building. It's gonna be a huge banner and it will say this basically. If you are if you're afraid of going back to your home country because you are LGBT, you may be eligible to stay here. And then 
it will be our website, lgbtpridingproject.org, and if we will just extend the asylum process briefly. The reason why it is so important is because there's a one-year deadline to apply for asylum. So a person can only apply for asylum within the first year of their arrival into the United States. If they miss that one-year deadline, it's really hard for them to prove why they couldn't apply. They need to show some extraordinary circumstances. So it's definitely, however, not a lot of people know about asylum. I knew, I realized about the asylum process three years after I came to the U.S. Imagine. So a lot of people just don't know and they miss the one-year deadline. It is so important to make this information available. That's why I'm actually thankful for you guys having me here and doing this podcast so we can reach out to more people. Whoever is listening to this, they can learn about this. You know, if you are gay, lesbian, transgender, or bisexual, and if you are physically in the United States, you don't have to go back to your home country where you've been persecuted or you have fear of future persecution. However, you have one year. So that's the most important thing. And as you see people, you know, they come to the United States, they come to San Francisco, and the first, where they go the first time? To the Castro. That's where they go right. to hang out, to have fun, have a good time, to, and then see the gay life. But there's no sign or place where it says LGBT immigration or asylum. So this is what we are doing right now, having our information out there saying that, this, you know, if you're gay, lesbian, transgender, you can just stay here and learn about asylum. So just putting that information out there is, it's been always very important for me to do this. And now with our partnership with the SFA Foundation, we are making this a reality. So I'm extremely thankful for them and very excited too. We will definitely make sure to highlight that point when we post this in the corresponding post and in the show notes. And yeah, of course. And also I wanted to ask where can or how people can support your mission? Is it spreading the word? Is it social media? How can your message be heard and how can you be supported? People can support us in different ways. They can volunteer. We do have legal volunteers and also event volunteers. They can contact us on our website. It's www.lgbtasylumproject.org mm-hmm. and they can host a house party and invite us. So we go to their houses and talk, talk about our project and our clients and they raise funds and awareness among their networks. Mm. They can also donate and support our project through the website. And if they, you know, we, they can also like our Facebook page. It's the LGBT Asylum Project on Facebook. And we also have an Instagram account as well. It's the same name, LGBT Asylum Project. And whenever we make a post, they can share it with their network. So that would always be helpful. Awesome. That's really helpful for us too, just as we think about our own events that we want to do and, you know, how we can support the, the folks that we interview and the folks that we talk to. So that's, thank you for that. Of course, yeah, definitely. Is there anything else that you want to share, Okan, and where can folks find you online? You just shared the LGBT Asylum website is there any other social media or websites that you would point people to to follow your work 
Yeah, so they can follow me on Facebook. I do a lot of posts about our work and our upcoming events. It is Okan Sangun, S-E-N-G-U-N. And the LGBT Titan Project has its own Facebook page, Instagram, where we share information about the events and some success stories and and our website it's the lgbt asylum project.org thank you so much and thank you for taking time out of your friday afternoon to speak with us of course my pleasure thank you so much